This is an historic day for the United States. Today, for the first time, we will start negotiating to revise a major free trade agreement. American politicians have been promising to renegotiate NAFTA for years, but today, President Trump is going to fulfill those promises. And welcome back to the Global Inquirer, where we take a look at intriguing case studies that help to explain or examine global trends. I'm your host, Nico Marsic, and today I'm joined by Katya Sanko, an econ and Slavic studies major here. Katya, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So our case study today that we're going to take a look at is a recent tariff that was placed on the Canadian lumber industry of 31 cents. And with this case study, we're going to transition into NAFTA renegotiations and how difficult trade policy and implementing trade deals in the 21st century can really be. But Katya, first off, what does this tariff actually entail? Just to give a quick overview, during the election season, Donald Trump promised to renegotiate NAFTA with the goal of getting a better deal for U.S. workers. He threatened scrapping NAFTA completely, um, but then he later settled to just renegotiate the terms. One measure that he took, the one that we're observing today, is the tariff on Canadian softwood imports that uh, was announced in April of 2017 over the argument that Canadian lumber companies are being unfairly subsidized by the Canadian government with subsidies of 3 to 24 percent. So what the Trump administration and the Department of Congress declared was a tariff equal to the percentages of the subsidies. And now there are tariffs of 3 to 24 percent. And then for all other companies, there are subsidies of 20 percent on Canadian lumber companies. Right. And then you got to sit down with Chris Boyd, who actually works in Canadian softwood lumber. Yeah, I think it's really important before diving into the implications on RN uh, that we observe the Canadian side of things and the direct impact of the tariffs. Uh, so Chris provides an insight into the immediate economic implications and the consequences, and we dive a little into a 40-year history of Canadian-U.S. lumber trade ever since the tensions started rising over accusations of the subsidies that I mentioned before. In their interview, Chris clears the air and explains uh, why these accusations don't have a strong base and that comparing the two subsidies are what he says are like comparing apples and oranges. So here's the interview. So my name is Chris Boyd. I'm with a company called Proben Export Limited. And we are one of the companies in the Proben group of companies. So that's a log and lumber company in British Columbia, Canada. Uh, I myself am a uh, sales guy for the company. And my market is the U.S. amongst amongst other offshore locations. But the U.S. is a big one for myself. And so I'd just like to ask, how do you deal with tariffs on a daily basis? Well, right now, I, um, you know, it's as simple as 100% passing the tariff on to the U.S. buyer. So we're not subsidizing in any way, shape, or form. If you need it as a U.S. buyer, you're going to cover the duty one way or the other. And so I'm going to take us into this article that I was reading the other day uh, by the Bloomberg Business Week, and they were explaining that American lumber companies are claiming that this that this subsidy on Canadian lumber is unfair and it's negatively and directly affecting American business. And I was just wondering, what's your take on this? 
basically what the U.S. side, the U.S. sawmills allege, I guess, is that Canadian sawmills are able to buy logs at the low market value. And so because of that, we have an advantage shipping into the U.S. And, you know, basically American sawmills cannot compete with Canadian sawmills in their own domestic market. I mean, that's what this, in essence, that's what this this whole fight is about. Right. Okay, that makes sense. There was some type of American equivalent to um, the Canadian subsidy, and it's like, it's kind of give and take. So um, the Americans have to pay for certain things. Like, do you, uh, would you be able to speak on that, that, or, or that the Canadians would have to pay for some things that the Americans don't have to pay well, for? Well, I can't really comment on the U.S. side. I don't know enough about it, but here, here's the issue, and that's, here's why I say it's um, it's kind of like comparing apples to oranges. Is So most of the lumber on the Canadian side of the border, most of the logs come from government-owned land. And that's where the argument arises, where, you know, the American side says, well, that price is undervalued because you didn't put those logs to open market. So, you know, in a, in a true open market system, the logs will always go to the highest bidder. But in, in our case, the Canadian sawmills didn't have to bid on the timber. They're guaranteed to receive the timber by the Canadian government, as yeah. opposed to the U.S. system, where most of the logs come from privately owned land. So it's a more kind of market-based, open-based system where the highest bitter gets those logs. Right. Okay. <laughs> that makes that makes a lot of so sense. That's very clear. Yeah, yeah, you've got two completely different systems. And as I've said, you're comparing apples to oranges. Um, it's a really, you know, it's a difficult argument and arguments can be made on both sides, you know, pro and pro and con. Mhm. And, and again, that's why this battle has gone on for 40 years, because there's really no right answer or wrong answer. It's all perception. Uh, and so you, you start, to, so you're talking about 40 years ago, this argument began. In, in your eyes, when did this argument really start? Well, so what we're on right now currently is called Lumber 5, or Round 5. So Round 1 known as the lumber one, started back in the early 1980s. So, I mean, yeah, we're talking, you know, this is officially 37 years worth of uh, battling over, you know, whether Canadian lumber is subsidized or not. Um, and so I'm going to uh, take this into kind of a more, like, applicable basis. Would you be able to explain how the tariffs hurt the American consumers? Well, yeah, I mean, it's as simple as, it's as simple as, you know, the prices are going to rise, prices of lumber are going to rise, and the American consumer is the one that's going to bear the brunt mm -hmm. of that. Um, I think we've seen since, since January 2017, where the preliminary duties started taking effect, I think we've seen somewhere in the neighborhood of 20% increase in lumber prices wow. in the U.S. market. And the people that have to pay for that are the people that are building houses and doing renovations. It's as simple as that. 
And so what about the American lumber companies then? Are they benefiting from this at all, or are they also um, hurting from this? Well, absolutely, because many of the guys, many of the companies that are on the coalition are large timberland owners. So who ultimately is going to benefit from this are the guys that own the logs, because it's going to drive up. If you can pay more for lumber, that means you can pay more for the logs. So those timberland owners haven't seen their costs go up at all. Mm -hmm. I assume the cost of maintaining timberlands is the same regardless, but they've probably seen an increase in log prices. I guess just to wrap up, um, uh, do you have any input on, uh, do you have an opinion on if there's a happy medium that you think will keep both American and Canadian softwood companies satisfied? Um, was there a system in the past that you think worked the best or um, anything of those, those sorts? Yeah. Well, I mean, the bottom line is for pro probably the last 15, 20 years, we have found a happy medium. I mean, we've been operating under managed trade for about 15, 20 years. So those are, when I say managed trade, that's negotiated deals between, you know, government to government on either a quota system, which limits Canadian lumber, you know, the volume of Canadian lumber shipped into the U.S., or, um, or a duty, which, um, you know, the whole idea behind that is to level the playing field with with uh, domestic supplies. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think we've, we've found a way to find middle ground in the past, and I'm sure there's a way that that'll happen again on this go-around. Um, it's just a matter of uh, hammering out a deal, and, you know, of course, both, car both parties are trying to negotiate the best deal for their country. So that's not the easiest negotiation in the world, but I think at the end of the day, yeah, there'll probably be a negotiated settlement and there'll be some form of managed trade for another six to ten year period of time and uh, we'll have peace again in the, in the lumber world. <laughs> Let's hope. <laughs> Let's hope, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mr. Boyd. I really appreciate your input. And you know, for our purposes, lumber isn't the only new disputed issue in U.S. trade policy, which is what really makes these NAFTA renegotiations that I had mentioned at the outset of the podcast so difficult and so delicate. You know, NAFTA entered into force in 1994, in an effort to integrate the economies of Mexico, U.S., and Canada. And this rose out of a, a larger wave of trade liberalization throughout the 1990s. And, you know, I'm not going to talk about the history and the costs and benefits economically, socially, or environmentally over time. But what we really want to talk about in the podcast is how difficult these renegotiations will be and how it reflects the difficulty of implementing trade deals as a whole in the 21st century. And to do all this and to discuss all of these different elements, I sat down with Professor Koshad, a international economics professor at the University of Virginia. Professor Koshad, thanks for coming on. Thank you. So I want to start 
with the simple question, why would the U.S. want to renegotiate a trade deal like NAFTA? I think this administration has the idea that multilateral deals are not to the benefit of U.S. And their thinking is that U.S. is a large market. Uh, most of the gains from trade in these deals accrue to smaller countries, not to the larger countries. And if a large country negotiates one-to-one -one with a small country, it has a lot of leverage. Whereas if you are just one in a deal of N countries, your power diminishes by the same degree. So they want to replace, with their own words, most of the multilateral deals with bilateral deals. And is there a precedent for this? Has this happened before where three, two or three countries renegotiate a trade or a bilateral agreement? Not really, because most of these deals are pretty new themselves. The free trade agreements and regional trade agreements have proliferated after 1990s. So actually, maybe now is sort of the first time when these things are put into dispute. Right. And so will it even be possible to come up with a new agreement then? Like, you know, since trade barriers are already very low, what could possibly be renegotiated? I really don't know. My sense is that there's going to be some sector-specific arm twisting. Mm -hmm. And then both sides or one side will declare victory because they have earned some protection that's going to bring some several thousand jobs uh, in some industries to a region. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's going to be big on the aggregate. There's going to be a little wiggle room in the best case scenario and there will be some declaration of victory. Right. So like you said, if, if we don't really know what the what the benefits will be, it comes back to this original question of why would the U.S. Re want to renegotiate it in the first place? I think a lot of this um, boils down to domestic politics right now. Mm -hmm. And so the U.S. is obviously very much more protectionist, and this could be reflected in our trade policy as well. And I want to touch on the fact that many analysts are worried about if Mexico elects a populist candidate in Andres Manuel Lopez, Mexico could pull out of negotiations. And this brings us into the topic of why negotiations are so delicate and difficult to implement in the 21st century due to, you know, political fluctuations and things like that. And given your background in, in international economics, how delicate can these trade talks be? They are very costly. They take years. It takes a lot of hours by policymakers and lawyers and officials. So they are really expensive in terms of passing them. That's why NAFTA was a big deal. NAFTA occupied the attention of the public for years. And something similar, we can talk about CAFTA, the Central American Free Trade Agreement. It was actually put to referendum in some Latin American countries, in some Central American countries, and it barely passed. And the, the people engaged in those negotiations had to be super strategic in terms of how much information is revealed when, how the negotiations are structured. It took years. Now, if one side just on a whim says, I want to undo this after 10 years, they will be very reluctant to come back to the table. Mm -hmm. And so why would a country want to keep certain parts of the trade agreement sort of secret in one sense or another? Because it's a give and take. At any point in time, they could be discussing what is a give for a country, and if that leaks to the press, that may, be, that may create a backlash, whereas mm -hmm. maybe the take will come a bit later. Mm -hmm. So it's typical that also in other deals, in mergers and acquisitions, actually 
information at any point in time very incomplete. Mm -hmm. And this sort of happened with the WikiLeaks of the TPP papers, which kind of revealed a lot of the gives that the U.S. was maybe giving to the international community. I think there was a little bit more in uh, TPP. That's the new territory that trade agreements are moving to, mm -hmm. from tariffs and quotas towards intellectual property rights and the investor state dispute settlement systems. My sense is that the public was relatively uninformed about these new aspects, especially the investor state dispute settlement systems. And there was a sense that some corporations are getting, not a particular country, but corporations were getting um, a deal outside of the sovereignty of the state and the legal system without the public democratically knowing about it. And I think there was, um, I think the left had, um, had a point in that. So, so clearly the nature of these trade deals are changing. And why then are they becoming more difficult to implement from the perspective of, go of the government? Well, uh, I think the general principle of diminishing returns applies to this as well. Uh, most of the deals cut in 90s uh, were the low-hanging fruits, lower tariff barriers that were way higher, get rid of quotas. These are, in a sense, no-brainer things for a lot of trade economists and policymakers. And also the coalitions, the regional, the countries that had most to gain from trading with each other have already formed these deals. So now what remains is trade partners that have relatively less to gain from each other, uh, from each other's uh, market access, and the issues that become, the negotiating issues are now getting costlier, like these ISDSs that we discussed and... Um, intellectual property rights, and so on. They're both new territory, they're relatively unknown, and also they are costlier to negotiate. So costs are in increasing, marginal benefits are diminishing, so maybe we are past the point of really having a big deal. But beyond diminishing returns and the cost-benefit, is the current political climate, like we mentioned in protectionist policy in the U.S., also at play here in, in how difficult these trade deals are in? are being implemented. Definitely. Um, I think where good leadership and politics comes in is weighing the short and the long run. So most of these new deals or maybe bigger deals, say like the TTIP, um, that's gonna that, that's supposed to connect the two sides of the Atlantic in a deep way, these are not going to have immediate short-run impact. These are much more long-run, deep integration agreements and good leadership requires looking into the long run and not playing domestic politics in the short run. So for something like TTIP to come back to the table again, there has to be a discrete shift in the perception of benefits in the long run on both sides of the Atlantic. And so what, what in your sense, how could these perceptions shift? Like what are some measures to where these perceptions could shift in a way that trade deals could be implemented? I think a lot of it boils down to, at the end of the day, to geostrategic considerations. Actually, many times trade deals are kind of like side payments or goodwill agreements for big alliances. So here, and that was a motivation behind TTIP as well, to counterbalance the, the shift of world market weights, weight to Asia. So unless there is sort of, again, a long run... Uh, not necessarily hostile, but sort of a balancing act of, say, we want to deeply integrate the Atlantic economies to form the largest market of innovation, trade, 
mobility and economic activity in the world, unless that shift happens, it's going to be very hard. So it really takes a geostrategic, geopolitical, long-run thinking, which people had right after the end of World War II, because the spirit of the time was, was like that. And now we have lost that spirit, and mm-hmm. we are running into petty issues. Yeah, I mean, well, if the nature of, of politics is short-run is short run political gains, then won't these trade deals just continue to be hard to implement in the future? It will be hard to come up with new big deals. And as we see in NAFTA, you are right, uh, we're going to run into, again, like petty issues of, of sectoral details mm-hmm. for even the things that exist. And And one last question I would present is, do you think that then bilateral trade deals or regional trade deals are going to become a lot more prevalent than any sort of multilateral trade deal like the TPP? Um, there's not a lot of room left. We'll see. I, I, one thing that can happen is right after the failure of TPP, China tried to step in and fill that vacuum. Mm-hmm. I guess it really depends on how active China can be in, in trying to get countries into multilateral or regional deals with itself which in the long run could really harm the U.S. if, if, the, if the weight shifts towards Asia. All right, thanks for coming on, Professor. Thank you very much. And that'll do it for today's show. I want to thank not only Chris Boyd and Professor Koshal, but also Katya for doing this uh, great research here. And I hope you enjoy listening to the uh, unique perspective of the Canadian lumber industry and, and broadly speaking, how difficult it might be to implement trade deals in the 21st century. I hope you tune in next week as Balthazar, Dominic, and I take a look at white elephant projects in Egypt and development, broadly speaking. You can like us on Facebook and check out our new website to listen to some of the older episodes. And we'll see you next time.